words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So one of my uh, favorite movies is A Man for All Seasons. Has anybody seen that? It's old, about 1966. No one has seen A Man for All Seasons? There were like a dozen people in the 8 o'clock who'd seen it. Okay. <laughs> a Man for All Seasons. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Uh, well, it tells the story of Thomas More. Uh, More was the Lord Chancellor of England under Henry VIII, and, and thus one of that country's most powerful men. Uh, but there was a problem. Now, as, you, as you probably know about Henry, uh, he objected to the Catholic Church on the grounds, along with a few other political disputes, uh, that the Pope, Pope Clement VII, would not allow him to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, and as A Man for All Seasons recounts, uh, Thomas More refused to take an oath acknowledging Henry instead of the Pope as the head of the church in England, uh, as, as the king was requiring. Uh, More was put on trial after being spied upon and betrayed by Richard Rich, who was this young man who had a, a lust for power, who had sought out More to get a political office, and More had, had rebuffed him, sort of detecting his character. Now, Rich's false testimony winds up resulting in Moore's conviction for treason. Uh, that's unfortunate for Thomas Moore, but it works out well for me uh, because it makes for my favorite scene in the entire movie. Um, sorry, Thomas Moore. Uh, <laughs> so after Rich has lied to the court, Moore is there in court cross-examining him, and he sees that, that Rich is wearing this chain, this big gaudy chain, and he's decked out, and this, he's a, sort of this mealy-mouthed little character, uh, and he's, he's wearing these big robes and this big officious chain, um, and he asks, you know, what, what, that's a chain of office, you know, what is Rich's new office, and it turns out that he's been appointed the Attorney General for Wales. Now, Wales at the time was seen as sort of this cultural backwater, I'm sorry, Howells, I know that's a Welsh name, uh, I don't mean that personally, it's just that the way things were. So, um, you have to take that. <laughs> so, uh, seen as this backwater, and, and Rich has betrayed him to become an attorney general for this place. And, and Moore comes up to him, and he comes really, really close, and he says to him, Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to forfeit his, whole, to forfeit his soul for the whole world, but for whales... I'm from Mississippi. I sympathize. Uh, so, you know, here we have two men, one willing to give up everything, all his power for what he thinks is right, and another one who is desirous of all the power that he can get. And the sad news is we are, are much more likely to try to be Thomas, or to try to be Richard Riches than we are to be Thomas Moores. We like power, or at the, at the very least, we like things to go our way. Uh, and the church oftentimes sort of encourages us in that regard. If you go to any Christian bookstore, you'll see that displayed because you'll go and you'll see shelf after shelf after shelf of books on leadership. And we say to people in a thousand ways, be a leader. We have leadership programs and leadership workshops. We want to develop leaders. We want to teach our youth to be leaders. Uh, we'll take the latest sort of secular business leadership model, you know, churchify it and deploy it, and it'll be, of course, the answer to all the problems that are going to face us. I've even heard people in and out of church say that everyone can be a leader, as oxymoronic as that obviously is. Uh, now, don't feel bad if you've been engaged in some of these activities. We, of course, we need leadership in the church. We can't do the things that we do without leadership. 
But leadership isn't our starting place, and it certainly isn't our end point. It isn't the basis of what it means to be a Christian. But our gospel lesson today from Mark tells us what it does mean to be a Christian. And here's what Jesus says to us. He says, be a follower. Be my follower. So what are we to make of this passage? Well, I decided I needed a little help. It's a hard passage, so I asked a few folks uh, what they thought. Uh, Reading scripture, by the way, is a great thing to do by yourself, but it's an even better thing to do with someone else. Uh, We we need each other to help uh, form us in God's word. So my consultants, if you will, were Jennifer Batchelor, uh, John Capshaw, Monica Parker, and Abdul Doris. So I trust that y'all know at least one or two of those folks. I sent each of them an email with our Mark passage, and I asked them two things. One, I asked them just their gut-level reaction when they read it, and two, any questions that they had about it. So I I won't read you verbatim everything that they wrote, though that that actually would be a pretty good sermon, because they had just amazingly great insights. But as I go, I'm going to incorporate a little bit of what they said, because I bet that what was on their minds might be on your mind, and a lot of it was what was on my mind. So, you know, I think as we all, all five of us discovered, this is a bit of a strange passage, and you've probably picked up on that already. Here we have Peter, who in the verses that are just before this one, had had said that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the first person in Mark's gospel, other than a demon, to say that. He's the first human to, to acknowledge that. And now he's rebuking Jesus. And then we have Jesus rebuking one of his most loyal disciples and calling him Satan. And then Jesus starts talking about carrying around crosses, which were instruments of execution, as you, as you well know, before coming again in glory. If we've heard this a, a lot, it can kind of gloss over it, but this is, this is exceedingly, exceedingly strange. Jennifer had, had a great summary of, of, of this exchange. She said that this is the, the intense side of Jesus. And that's absolutely right. Uh, and if our ears are open, it's also, I think, intimidating. Um, I'm, I'm left with the same reaction that Monica and Abdul described to me in their email. And they just said, you know, I, I don't want to be denied by Jesus. This is, this is scary stuff if, we're, if our ears are open. So considering how challenging these words are, we better understand what's going on. A little bit of background will help. Uh, in the passage just before this one, we've learned that Jesus has traveled with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea was a city built by Philip II, uh, who was son of Herod the Great. You probably remember Herod the Great from all of the Christmas stories, right? Sound familiar? Everybody on, on, on the bus. Uh, now, Philip, like his father, wasn't a king in his own right. He answered to the Roman Empire, and the city is obviously named for Caesar, Caesarea. So distinguish it from another Caesarea, which was on, on the Mediterranean coast. It's called Caesarea Philippi, the Caesarea that Philip built. Um, And so in this city, in Caesarea Philippi, there is a temple that was dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. And now, this place is about a two-day's journey up from Galilee, where Jesus has been doing most of his ministry. And and it's all the way up here, in the shadow of Roman Empire, where they're worshiping the Roman emperor as God, that Peter makes his astonishing claim that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, you are the Christ, Peter says in verse 29. So these, my friends, these, these are dangerous words. Uh, the Greek here is ho Christos, to, to Greekify you a little bit, and, and it means anointed one. 
It's simply the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, which again, it means anointed one. Um, not all, but many Jews in Jesus' day expected an anointed one, a Messiah, to come and be the true king of Israel. Uh, now, this Messiah was supposed to do three basic things. Uh, pretty much everyone agreed on this if you were expecting a Messiah. One, he's supposed to either rebuild or cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. Um, two, he's supposed to bring God's justice to the world. And three, as a part of that, he's supposed to defeat the enemies that are threatening God's people. So when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, he knows very well that this means Jesus is about to come into conflict with the Roman Empire and indeed all of the forces of the world that have been oppressing Israel. But then Jesus says something to Peter that just utterly shocks him. He says that the Son of Man, that's another Messiah term Jesus is applying to himself, is going to be rejected by Israel. In fact, he's going to die, and what's more, he's going to rise again. For, for Peter, and he's reflecting all of Israel, this, this is not the Messiah's job description. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs win. I mean, otherwise you're not the Messiah. Uh, so, you know, G Peter takes Jesus aside. Uh, and no, this is my recreation. This is not in the Bible. But it, basically what he says is something like this. Jesus, what are you thinking? You have got to be kidding me. You're the Messiah. Now act like it. Don't you know what we're facing? Don't you know we put all of our hope in you? Now, it's easy with the wealth of hindsight to sort of look down on Peter's rebuke. We like to do that a lot. Sort of look down on Israel. Oh, those crazy Israelites are always getting things wrong. To look down on, on Peter. Um, but his reaction is very understandable. Uh, you know, it's not like he's just scared. He's, the one, he's marched up with Jesus to the, a place of Roman power, and he's the one who started the Messiah talk, right? He knows where that can lead. He knows... Uh, that that's the kind of thing that can get you killed. Uh, and, and he doesn't seem very hesitant to take on that mission. But now, in Peter's eyes, Jesus is casting all of that aside. We can understand why he'd be upset. Uh, Jennifer put it this way. Uh, I also feel kind of sorry for Peter. He genuinely loved Jesus and was expressing dismay at his impending demise, and he gets chewed out. That's exactly it. It's because Peter had staked his hope in Jesus, that he loved Jesus, that he can't stand in his eyes to see Jesus fail. But Jesus had in mind a different kind of messiahship than Peter does. He, in fact, calls Peter Satan. Now, that's not just Jesus generically calling Peter evil, right? The Satan literally means the accuser. You might remember that from Job. Everyone remembers Job, right? Um, that Satan is the one who accuses Job before God. The literal translation of that term is, is the accuser. Uh, Peter isn't looking, the problem here, that Peter is not looking at things from God's point of view. And thus, he's accusing Jesus of failing to be what the Messiah is supposed to be. So what is the Messiah supposed to be? Now, at this point, uh, well, you know, where, where Peter is thinking at this point is that the Messiah is the Savior of Israel. Um, but Jesus' vision of being the Messiah is that he is going to be Israel. Everything that Israel was supposed to be. You see, Israel was supposed to be a blessing for the entire world. We see that in our Genesis passage today. today. Let's go back and let's listen um, to what God's promise to Abraham was. Here it is, back in Genesis 17. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I think you've probably picked up on this. It repeats the same ideas a lot, right? A multitude of nations, kings, plural, an everlasting covenant. This promise is not just for Abraham. It's for the world. Genesis 12, 3 uh, puts it this way. My entire Sunday school class knows this because I quote this every Sunday school. Um, God's promise to Abraham was that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, many people misinterpret this series of passages as referring simply to Isaac and, and Ishmael as the forefathers of Israel and, and Islam. You might have heard that out there. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Okay. Um, well, it, that, that way of thinking is quite simply wrong. Um, it comes from the fact that the Quran sort of claims Is, Ishmael as a prophet and a forerunner, forerunner of Muhammad, but we don't actually have any reason to, to think that that's true. Um, and, and by thinking that way uh, and trying to be generous in some way as people do that, they're actually cutting themselves off from what the real picture here is. The real picture is that God loves the entire world, all of the world, and that his purposes through Israel are for the whole world. Israel, Genesis tells us, it's God's project to bring redemption to all of God's through creation and to all of the pain and the suffering in the world. So going back to our passage in Mark, when, when Jesus takes up Israel's job as Israel's Messiah, he's not just out to save Israel. He's out to save the world from all the evil that besets it. And he's telling us that he, he is doing it right now. He's going to give his life and gain the world. Now, here's something really amazing. In the midst of this, he's calling us to follow him and to be part of that world-saving mission. Now, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy calling. Um, Jesus, he turns to his disciples in this scene, and he turns to us, I would say, and he tells them to take up their crosses and follow him. We tend, to, we tend to hear that. We tend to hear this phrase, take up your cross and follow me, in light of what we know will happen to Jesus in his death. And it's good that we do that. That's appropriate. Um, but it would also be helpful to put ourselves in the mindset of his disciples before Jesus' crucifixion um, to see how they would have heard this. Um, and they would have heard, take it, your crosses in a slightly different perspective. Now, this, this crowd would have known all about crosses, right? They were one of Rome's favorite ways of telling a conquered people that we own you. You aren't in control. We are in control. We're so much in control that we can crucify you in this humiliating way. Um, it was, the cross was sort of preserved and used especially on those who had committed heinous crimes that threatened the power of the empire. So when you hear about the two thieves on the cross beside Jesus, uh, just as an aside, these aren't just petty criminals, right? These are folks who had been engaged in in bad stuff, probably something more like highway robbers, right, who threatened the peace and safety of everyone. Um, so Rome used crosses with, with abandon for those who went up against it. So, for example, another movie reference for you here. Did, have you seen Spartacus? Y'all seen Spartacus once or twice? All right. Um, that actually reflects a real event, the, the Third Servile War, quote-unquote, which was actually in about AD, or excuse me, uh, 70 B.C., um, and, and the empire, after that rebellion, after they quashed it, they executed 6,000 people on the Appian Way, uh, the road leading from Capua to Rome, all along the road. As you probably remember that great scene in that movie. Um, a little bit closer to home, in the sense of being closer to where Jesus is, is in operating, right here in Galilee, um, around 4 B.C., 
Uh, after the death of Herod, remember that's the father of the man who built Caesarea Philippi, Rome had crucified uh, 2,000 men in and around Galilee. So saying, take up your cross, and saying it right there where Jesus is saying it, was saying to sign on to the risk of a gruesome death, um, and that those who, the kind of death that those who went up against the most powerful nation in the world and lost would suffer. But Jesus' startling message amidst that is that those who follow him can be assured of Jesus' final victory, and that the actions that we now take will be reflected when Jesus' victory is accomplished the world over. So, what does it really mean, quote, what does it really mean when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? Uh, that's, the mess- or that's the question that Monica and Abdul asked me, and, and it's one that confronts each of us. I'll quote Jennifer again. Um, she put it this way, am I denying myself and following Jesus? If not, why not? And what does that even mean? What should I be giving up? Um, those are great, those are great questions that I think we should be asking ourselves. Now, I think first, it means that we have to start learning to see ourselves from God's perspective. Remember, it's us that are, we are following Jesus. The litmus test isn't, you know, have I done X, Y, and Z enough to be good enough to go to heaven, right? That's the wrong perspective. Jesus has already taken our burdens on himself, and, and our task is to respond to his grace Uh, that he has offered us with a life that that reflects that grace back out into the world. But we can can only know Jesus if we're listening to him. And to do that, we need prayer, uh, we need scripture, and we need each other. We can't, like Peter here, sort of rest on our our preconceived notions and our closed ears. But often that's the first thing that we do. Uh, And my exchange with uh, John Capshaw really brought this out to me. So, uh, I gave him sort of an out at the end of my email. I said, you know, hey, don't, don't worry about it if you're too busy. Um, you know, he's a busy man. I didn't want to, I was kind of giving it to him late in the week. I didn't want him to feel pressured to do it. So I gave him an out. I said, don't worry about it if you're too busy. Um, and here's, wh- here's what he sent back to me. And by the way, this was in bold italics. Um, here's what he said. Wow, I'm shocked by your last statement. No problem at all if you're too busy. Isn't that one of the reasons we fall short in God's eyes? We put ourselves first in almost everything we think or do. So after that, he did note that he was kidding. Uh, but next time I need something, I'm just going to be, listen up, Capshaw. Here's my questions, and I need some answers. <laughs> but his statement, and it, did, it highlighted for me just how much we do everything in our, everything we can to keep a hold on our power. You know, own our leadership over our own lives, over our own lives, to the neglect of following Jesus. So he went on to say this: My gut reaction is, I or we want the best for less. I want to have it all. I want to have all the things that come with being a disciple of Jesus. But we are not willing or prepared for the consequences that come with it. We are willing to give up the life that we have today. Are or you know, are we willing to give up the life that we have today for a future with God? It sounds awesome until we must give up some of the things that we cherish, worship, or think that we must have. That's going to look a little bit different for every person. Um, But I think the starting point for us is to ask, not, you know, am I doing enough? That just turns things back on ourselves, right? It makes us the leader again. Um, But to ask, am I listening for, am I looking to Jesus? And, you know, where we're led there, it might not be dramatic, and it might not be glamorous, but I do think it will be glorious. Um, 
I would say also that this is true for us as a church and not just on a personal level. Um, I'd like to tell you about one place I know that's done some really amazing things in response to listening to God among their congregation. Uh, It's called the East Belfast Mission. I was able to go there last summer. It's in Belfast, Northern Ireland, of course, um, and it's a, it's a Methodist church. It's a Methodist mission church, and I have some pictures if y'all could throw them up there. Uh, I don't know how well you can see this, but you probably already know that um, Northern Ireland is a place that is sort of rife with conflict between Protestants and Catholics, and can y'all still hear me in the back, by the way, since I stepped away? Okay, um, and neighborhoods are partitioned off. You have Protestant neighborhoods, you have Catholic neighborhoods, histories of violence, places where people who know that their relatives have been killed because a bomb's gone off there. When you get off the bus in Belfast, you can see this. I I can't tell if you can see it, but this is one of the Protestant neighborhoods. It's right south of the the bus station, and it says, you are now entering Loyalist Sandy Row, heartland of the Ulster Freedom Fighters, and it's a guy in a ski mask with a gun pointed at you. Um, So the next slide, Uh, this is just to tell you where they are. This is in one of, this is in Shank Hill Road, you can see the guy with the gun celebrating these previous folks who were involved in these paramilitary organizations that were fighting the, the IRA. Lots of badness on both sides. Another slide. This is a guard tower where the British Army watches over um, one of the loyalist neighborhoods, uh, excuse me, one of the, the quote-unquote Republican neighborhoods, one of the folks who want to separate off and join Ireland. Um, so they have guys up there monitoring to see, make sure that no badness is going on. Another slide. Um, and this is a poster that's right, a mural that's right across from where the East Belfast Mission is, this little Methodist church. Uh, so this church has a history of putting itself out to the community. It's always been the kind of church that serves the place that, it, it, that it's in. Um, and the next slide here, uh, back in World War II, their building in the middle of the Blitz, uh, in addition to London being bombed, um, Belfast was, was bombed because it was a major shipyard. In fact, most of the jobs here used to be in the shipbuilding plants, place that built the Titanic. Well, a bomb fell on the church. The whole church was gone. Um, and they had to start, and so it's sort of in their DNA that who they are is not a building. Who they are is going out into the community. Buildings are good for that. I mean, they did rebuild. Uh, next slide. Um, this is what their church looked like about two years ago. It's amazing because it kind of looks like City Road. And they found out that the roof on this church was leaking, and it was going to be so expensive to fix it that it would be more economical to build a whole new building than to uh, fix the roof that they had, right? Um, I hope I'm not making the trustees nervous. Uh, (laughs) So next slide. So what they decided to do is, you know what, we're going to redo things. They partnered with a lot of different other churches and agencies, and they said, we are going to take our mission out to the community. So they have community stores, they have job facilities that help people find jobs in a place where it is hard, hard to come by a job. This is Stepping Stone, their sort of job placement agency. They work with the government to do that. So next slide. This is what they're building. This was last summer. They're building a a new place that is free of the history of violence, where no one's been killed here before, Uh, a place where people can come together from differing, uh, from, from Protestants and Catholics, a place where people can go to find jobs, can find a good place to live, can have a safe place to shop and eat a meal, uh, and live. All of these facilities are going to be in this new place. It's where their church once was. It's right where that church sat. And next slide. This is what it looks like now. It's called Skynos, which is the, the term for tent or tabernacle. It's the same term that's used when 
it says that the word came and dwelt among us, right? The very idea is that they are being Jesus for this community. So I, I'm not sure if there's another slide. Maybe there is. No, okay. So that's what they're doing. Um, they heard a message that we need to go be Christ for our community. And they thought about ways to do it, and they started doing it. And it came from a place of prayer and worship. They're still a worshiping congregation. Everybody you meet who's going to volunteer, there's all you know, church folks and other folks that they brought in. Um, and when I think about our own church, um, I actually see some great things going on in that regard as well. I think about the community meal. Didn't start in a committee meeting. There were committee meetings that were necessary to make it happen, but it started when uh, the Holy Spirit touched uh, Dr. Fullerton's heart, and, and he said, we need to go do this as a church. I think about uh, Mountaintop and all the great experiences we've had there and how much that has shaped people's idea of what it means to be a missional church here. I think about just another, a small example, Josh uh, Ferris's prayer labyrinth, right? You don't go and build a prayer labyrinth um, unless you know what it means to pray. Uh, you don't say, hey, our community needs a place to pray unless you know that personally. Um, that's an amazing thing. Um, now, I'm not saying that we need to tear down church buildings. Trustees, you can all sleep, sleep well tonight. Um, our location, our building, it's a great launching pad for us to do ministry, for us to be Christ, and for us to follow Christ here. Uh, and we are involved in some really, really great things, as we've said. Um, but I think that we should always not be just resting on the good things that we've done. We should be looking to Jesus and looking into ourselves from Jesus' perspective and continually asking, where is Jesus leading us? Where is Jesus leading me? Now, what do I have to lay down to do that? What do I need to pick up? Um, it requires wisdom and discernment. We need each other to figure that out together. Um, that's, that's not an easy process. Um, but in the midst of that, we need to say no to giving ourselves to lesser things, like, say, Richard Rich, um, and instead give them to Jesus' things. And when we do that, we can be confident that uh, in Jesus and in his death and resurrection and his promised return, that he will take our offerings and he will bring them to, to glorious fulfillment as we follow him into the kingdom. And our prayer is that it would be so by the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.